Welcome once again to Wisdom of the Elders, the podcast. I'm Ron Alesco, and I'm here with the creator of this incredible series, Sunny Oaks. Sunny, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, sitting up here in my wonderful paradise in the woods. <laughs> uh, it it's, must be a lovely time of year. And and before we get started and explain to everybody what we're doing here, I want to congratulate you because at the uh, recent Northeast Regional Folk Alliance Conference, you were given a, an award, the Lifetime Achievement Award. Now, I always feel Lifetime Achievement. I mean, you're, you're still going strong. You've got more more to do and you're, you're keeping busy, but congratulations. Uh, you, you've given so much to this community over the years with uh, all the work you've done, you know, the Phil Oaks song nights, honoring your brother, keeping his music alive, but more than that, all the the, the, the great jobs that you've done, mentoring and, and, and encouraging people. Um, all the, you've been stage manager or a volunteer at practically every festival in this country and Canada. Uh, you run your own concert series uh, in near your home in New York. And uh, uh, of course, Wisdom of the Elders. And there's so many other things. I know I'm going to forget them all. But again, I just want to congratulate you and thank you for, for letting me be part of this Wisdom of the Elders podcast series. Um, you're just an incredible person. And the, the love that was shown to you that night in, in, in uh, Asbury Park when the award was announced, well, I felt so good. I wish you could have been there with us that night. Thank you so much, Ron. Well, let's uh, let's get this new one started because this is a this is a good one we've got today. We're going to go back in time. Uh, I should explain for those of you who are listening to this for the first time. Wisdom of the Elders was a series that Sunny created at the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance Conference back in 2010, and NERFA, as it's known, has. Uh, been sponsoring this, this podcast series along with Folk Music Notebook, the radio channel that I, I host. And what we're doing is each month we are presenting another Wisdom of the Elders program. We are going back to the archives of some of the shows that were previously recorded, as well as doing some new ones. In fact, next month we have a new one, which we'll tell you about later. But today we're going to go back to the year 2012. And Sonny, uh, you want to introduce uh, the, these artists and tell us how this this panel came to be? Well, I, I'm, I'm the one that's lucky enough to be able to choose who gets to be on the panels. So I put people together that I think have something in common, that they, at least they know each other, you know, from years of, of traveling around. And this particular group I love because I put on Bob Fass who is one of the most fascinating people that I've ever met. And unfortunately, he, he has passed away since this tape. Yeah. So I'm so glad that we got him on tape, because when you listen to this, you'll hear the amazing stories he has to tell. He was a very, very special person on WBAI in New York City. Mm -hmm. And then we have Josh Johnson, who is, he's still out there working. Mm -hmm. he, he's in Chicago, I believe. And he was... Uh, manager for people like Peggy Seeger. And um, he was very involved with Broadside Magazine, which is one of my favorite entities. I think it's, if you were into doing archival research, Broadside Magazine is a place to look. And Josh had a lot to do with that magazine. And you can find it on the Smithsonian Institute website. You can actually look at the magazines there. And the third person in this group is somebody who, who I adore. He lives down in uh, Woodstock. His name is Happy Traum. And Happy uh, does uh, 
he does teaching, guitar, teaching how to play guitar. He has tapes. Probably at this point, you can do it online. I don't know. Yeah, it's actually a homespun. I, I think it's homespun, homespun recordings place. now. Yes. And he does it. Yeah, you can download the, the lessons. <laughs> and he and his, his brother already, I, I first saw them back in the 19, I 1960s or 70s at the Philadelphia Folk Festival. He is one of the best performers out there. And uh, you know, I think you'll enjoy hearing his stories as well. And my co-host for this particular session was a gentleman named Roger Dietz, yeah. who's from the Philly area, and uh, just a lot of fun. So I hope you enjoy what you hear. It's rather a long one because they had so much interesting stuff to say, and we didn't want to cut them off. Right. And there's also a, a little special guest that appears at one point. Uh, David Amram uh, uh, comes in and tells some stories. So uh, you'll hear from him as well. Uh, I, I should let our audience know there are some audio issues, nothing serious, but you'll hear a little background noise, some people coughing and such. I mean, when, when these panels were done, they were just being recorded for posterity and never thinking uh, we'd have podcasts. I think in 2012, they didn't even have such a thing as podcasts. So, uh, but I think you'll find it very listenable. And uh, also you'll, you'll hear a couple of references to things that were going on at the conference. There was a screening of the Bob Fass documentary, Radio Unnameable. Uh, and you'll hear that mentioned. Uh, so you'll hear the announcement about going down to the room to see it tomorrow. So don't go to the room because tomorrow there's not going to be anything there, <laughs> but I think you can find this film. It's still available online. Anyway, Sonny, should we, uh, should we go back in time now? Let's go. Okay, here we go. At the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, Wisdom of the Elders from 2012. Here is Sonny Oaks to introduce. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, and others. <laughs> Welcome to the Wisdom of the Elders. This is its third year in existence. The purpose being to interview old people <laughs> and ask them if they can still remember anything. <laughs> older people. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for defining that for us. This is the Wisdom of the Elders. And Supposedly, they have some wisdom after all these years, and we're hoping that's going to be so. I'm Sunny Oaks. I dreamt up this little game. <laughs> and each year, I invite people to take part for a certain reason. This year, I figured I... There's, you know, there's a lot of documentaries coming out right now about the 60s, and I figured it might be fun to actually have some people who were around in the 60s and know it, know them well, very well. It was a very major part of their lives. And these people all qualify, and that's why they are here. And we have right here to my left, Happy Traum. And if you look in your program book, you'll see who he is. <laughs> and next to him is Josh, who he was. <laughs> This is a rowdy crowd. <laughs> That's how I used to be, right. Next to him is Josh Dunson. For some of you, he might be the mystery man. You're not quite sure, but when we get through, you'll be amazed who he, what he has accomplished in his lifetime so far. And next to him, the amazing Bob Fass from WBAI. And on the other end, my cohort in crime here, the, my assistant. Equally amazing. Equally amazing. Uh, for different reasons. 
from Sing Out Magazine will say at this point, Roger Dietz. And the format will be approximately a 15-minute interview of each person. And then we'll have a little back and forth, having them talk among themselves, loudly so you can hear. (laughs) And if you have questions at that point, by all means, we will certainly entertain questions. All right, we're going to let Roger take it over. Oh, thank you. I thought it was interesting when we went to to lunch today, and, and next... And here, here, here in the Catskills, next to the sliced gefilte fish was a tray of ham. <laughs> now, that wasn't the only ham at this particular weekend. I'm here, too. And so, in other words, this isn't your, this was, this isn't your father's and mother's folk music. It's different, it changes. And when Sunny first called, or got in touch with me, she said, uh, would, would you co-host Wisdom of the Elders? And the first thing I thought is, well, I've got whiz, <laughs> but I'm certainly not eld. And then she said, no, not you, kid. <laughs> she says, the others. And I said, well, they're, they're very young. I mean, goodness gracious. I never thought so before, but now that I'm <laughs> approaching that age, they're just kids. And also I was told that the idea was, the cohesive uh, thing was, we were gonna talk about, uh, tie it all in with Greenwich Village in the 60s. And she also told me to be funny. So far, uh, that hasn't worked. (laughs) But I thought, funny? Three funnier guys I have never known. But then I thought about how perfect the, uh, the panel is, how the perfect the three of them are for talking about the subject of the folk community, but the greater community. I'm going to turn to uh, Bob first. Oh, Bob, or Bob Fass. <laughs> Bob first is in a, another seminar. <laughs> and uh, when you first started, what made you want to do the radio thing? <laughs> I was an actor, and the play I was in, after two and a half years, closed. And so I was looking for what we used to call a bread job. And uh, this this incredible radio station said that they wanted someone to volunteer to read plays and to... uh, read novels and short stories and to say you're about to hear and you have just heard which is mostly what I did for the the first few years that I was there say you're about to hear and uh, that was uh, and uh, uh, it felt a little restrictive but much less restrictive than not paying my rent (laughs) so uh, I, I was very happy there for a while looked for other work. Uh, I did. Uh, uh, I had done Three Penny Opera, and I had gotten uh, like a feeling for Brecht, and uh, then I did Behan's The Hostage, which was uh, opened up a whole new world to me, and 
was another more or less musical play. And the kind of music that was in both of them somehow just seemed, I don't know, it seemed close, so close to folk music that it was folk music. And um, uh, I uh, was very happy doing that for a while. The, the thing that was interesting is well, everything else we heard on radio was pretty much um, similar to each other. The, the talk radio was, was, was of a certain sound, and, the, and the, many of the talk hosts made the radio show about themselves. Well, silence was something that was to be shunned, like a, a, a fraction of a second that hadn't been sold to somebody. Uh, couldn't, I mean, you just couldn't have anything. I mean, if the, the sound stopped for a moment, they were afraid people would change the station. And uh, I, I mean, I, I thought that was sort of bizarre because, um, you know, one of the things that I used to like to do after I heard a piece of music that I loved was to just like sit there for a moment and like run it past my brain again, you know, just in the silence, contemplate what had happened. And uh, uh, and then there was Murray Kay talking and the way Murray Kay talked and there were all of the good guys and the bad guys and the medium guys and they were all they were all sell, selling soap and I didn't have to do anything but talk about or say things about what I thought was important or worth listening to. You also had folks on who who I think probably couldn't get by the booking agent at any other radio show you, you had activists and folk singers and uh, <laughs> and poets uh, I mean the names of <clears throat> Allen Ginsberg might stop by Tim, Timothy Leary could stop by Abby Hoffman and uh, you, uh, and Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan. By and Judy Collins did a program on WBAI and uh, there were programs where they uh, they talked about what Cage was trying to do with his music, and uh, uh, there were great American composers who were never, ever heard any place but a station like WBAI or one of the community stations now. And uh, in the, I mean, it, I guess it had to do with what was on the station, but people like. Happy would be in the audience, yeah. and happy and happy to help us when we needed help, which was very often. So it was a revelation. Uh, you know, the the airways were totally restricted to people like us until this kind of programming came along. Um, it would never even dream. You know, if you weren't Perry Como or Doris Day or somebody, you'd never get on the radio. So suddenly, here's this um, station where you could drop in you could you know they somebody would be welcoming to people you know who played the kind of music we did and, and it, was a, it was a like another world it was fantastic that we could reach people in New York in this way so it was it was a it was, it was mind-blowing at the time but getting the message to to those people a lot of those people were people who were ignored demographically by by every other radio station, actually probably ignored by the community 
that the community didn't even know, oh, who cleans my office at night? There's somebody actually works overnight. And also to get the, the messages, little m, big m, out to the people who, uh, who were actually awake, be they insomniacs or uh, folks who were driving a cab, uh, they weren't really getting messages, nor I think entertainment, from some of those other radio stations. Well, you know, there were times when uh, I was working at night in a factory, and I, it, the radio, I mean, the only proof of my reality to me would come out of that little box. You know, uh, I felt like I was an exile from everything that was exciting in life. And then there was this little box that was saying, <clears throat> you know, there is a world out there. And uh, I, uh, I mean, a radio, I really listened carefully. I remember <laughs> the, how awful it was when the antenna broke off my little portable FM radio. <laughs> And at first I tried to find a paper clip to fix it and that didn't work and then finally I came up with 15 bucks to get it repaired and I felt like I was uh, one of the 1%. <laughs> I had a little transistor radio and you remember they used uh, the batteries then did not last as long as it yep. now and, and I nobody was supposed to know I was listening overnight. Uh, my first uh, period junior high or high school teacher knew because I was sleeping because I was staying up late at night uh, listening to the to the radio and uh, you're also credited first of all the film is wonderful and I, and I really do invite everybody to the screening tomorrow at 10 a.m. in the orange room radio unnameable is is a, is a magnificent piece of work well thank you i don't know whether it's worth getting up at 10 o'clock in the morning for <laughs> and here's something that was only on after midnight but yeah. but thank you very much uh they i'm sure they're gonna love to have you on the tour to get that movie uh <laughs> sold but uh, this freeform idea the, the freeform radio. You're pretty much credited with uh, with that that term long before it was well, in vogue. I mean, that was something that was happening. It wasn't something that I invented. Tom Donahue was doing something like that in uh, San Francisco and other places around the country, where suddenly uh, the law had changed so that radio stations couldn't broadcast the same thing on AM and FM at the same time. So uh, they needed a whole new source of programming. And, uh, you know, I was uh, not making much money, but they felt it was cheaper than uh, getting stuff from the BBC to put me on and let me use my taste and my judgment. Uh, it may have been their mistake. <laughs> pretty, pretty much to the time you were on, not not twelve to five, but uh, but also the the times that were a changing. We're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about. Um, well, I had a draft card. Can you believe that, folks? They actually would have asked me to go. <laughs> so I was really interested in current events, uh, unlike. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, when you know we have a volunteer army, and well, not everybody pays attention as much as they should. But back then, 
stuff was happening. Civil rights movement, uh, feminism, and, and also the anti-war stuff. And there certainly, you certainly weren't going to hear much stuff um, from both sides uh, on, on the radio. You were going to hear what, what some program director or owner allowed to be heard. But on your station, we, we could hear folks saying, this is the way it is. Well, it was, that was uh, really amazing. Uh, I, I spoke about Murray the K before. Uh, I don't mean to disparage him. He, I interviewed him once, and he said, you know, radio, having a radio station license is a license to steal because you are licensed to program something that doesn't belong to you to people who own it, who have no choice in what goes on it, and then you sell their ears to advertisers. Uh, radio, as far as the law says, was supposed to operate in the public interest, convenience, and necessity. And uh, you know, I don't think that. I mean, I, I don't think that there was anything on but BAI that, that really attempted to do that at that time. Were you, su were you surprised? I mean, I guess you, you're there, there's a microphone, you don't see everybody. But when you had the, uh, the fly-in, the <laughs> gathering at the Grand Central Station or the, or the, or the garbage strike sweep-in where you invited people to... Uh, come by for, a, for the party. Explain what that was, Bob, first before you answer. Well, uh, I'll try to do it as briefly as possible so that you'll still want to see the movie. <laughs> um, there had been, well, Gene Shepard, who was a, a great, great broadcaster, Excelsior, you said, the advertisers, the people who sell soap, don't think we have any audience. So let's all meet. This was not my program. This was his. I was in the army when he did this. He said, let's all meet at midnight at the John, in the ruins of the John Wanamaker building. Do you, you remember that? The John Wanamaker was a, a very old department store that burnt down, and in the ruins appeared one night, oh, like two or three hundred people just milling around. He, Shepard used to talk about people milling, and uh, uh, they had uh, kites about the size of their thumb, and they had signs that said things like, down with up. <laughs> And they were there, Excelsior. There were people who came and just stood around. And of course, the cop shows up and sees that this is happening. And says, uh, well, who's in charge here? But see, no one was in charge. Shepard had gone home as soon as the other people had shown up. And it was just had to be entered with a big question mark in his, uh, his uh, book of the log of the day. And um, I thought, yeah, that's, that's good to get people to do something that seems to have no object but the activity itself. And um, 
Murray the K, who I mentioned before, uh, had a discotheque. You may have heard of Murray the K's World, which was in the the uh, it was in Roosevelt Field, I think, where uh, Lindbergh had taken off on his flight to France from, and it was turned into a discotheque, and it was a very rich environment. There were all kinds of projections on the wall done by people like Stuart Brand and Usko, uh, Judd Yalcott, Gerd Stern, all, all of these wonderful Woodstock artists who were into visual and sound uh, collages. And uh, there, there was this environment, and we went out there, drove out there in the car. We uh, uh, may have smoked a joint or two in the car. And when we got there, the environment was pretty exciting. And we thought, where can we do something like this where we won't have to pay rent? It's got to be in a public space. And someone said, let's take a little trip out to the airport. And we went to the airport, and in those days there was a beautiful Calder mobile hanging at the arrivals building in uh, in uh, Kennedy, and it was just wonderful. This big, empty, gorgeous, well lit space, uh, clean, uh, and. People were wandering around. Obviously, they had done something in the car on the way out there. Other groups of people were grokking on it, having a great time. And uh, we thought, hey. So for about a week on the air, we said, we're going to go out to Kennedy Airport. We're going to show up at midnight. And 7,000 people showed up <laughs> on the coldest night of the year. And it was, it was a great, wonderful party. Uh, and uh, we, were we were congratulating ourselves on the great fun that we'd had. And in the middle of it, we got what in radio you call a dead baby call. You know, someone calls up when you're talking about good old rock and roll and says, my baby just died. Something that, like, throws a wet blanket over everything you're doing. and It's real, and you can't ignore it. Uh, so this woman called up and said that she had been burnt out of her apartment on McDougal Street, strangely enough. And uh, instantly, someone called and said, look, I'm going to put this woman up in a hotel. We can pick her up, and we can take her there and pay the hotel bill. And uh, other people called up, carpenters called up and said that they, they would help to repair the apartment and get it. And they thought, you know, there's a, a lot of energy out there that wants to do the right thing. And uh, um, Emmett Grogan, who was um, many ways uh, a horrible person, and in many ways a quite wonderful, remarkable person, uh, said, uh, well, we cleaned the streets of San Francisco, talking about the diggers. And I thought, well, it's the Lower East Side is certainly ripe for that. 
there had been a garbage strike that was just settled. And when the garbage strike was settled, the sanitation workers didn't get a very good deal. And uh, the, the city took its time about cleaning up most of the city, except for the, uh, you know, the showier places uptown. And uh, we said, well, we'll clean up a block on the Lower East Side. We picked uh, Krasner and I more or less did what little planning there was. And uh, we, uh, we said, well, we'll just go down there and clean the street. The Department of Sanitation had been listening. They had called us to a meeting and accused us of trying to destroy their reputation. <laughs> and uh, uh, so they, but they had gone to 7th Street where we had planned to go because it had bisected the Lower East Side. And we, we said, uh, whoa, they cleaned up 7th Street. But they didn't clean up 8th Street or 6th Street or 4th Street. So. We cleaned from one river to the other. Not only did the people in the audience clean, but people from advertising agencies came. And Mr. Clean himself came down, <laughs> and he was handing out all kinds of materials, and and it was it was a great, wonderful event. It was great, and that's uh, that's in the, so when the movie. When you were Bob. Oh, uh, 66 or 67. Again, and if yeah. you want to want to really get a good feel for what, what had happened, uh, come to the screening. All right, we're going to get to Josh Dunson now. And Josh Dunson, for me, his claim to fame, other than his amazing uh, Real People's Music Agency, in which he has represented people like Pe Peggy Seeger and Cy Khan, people who have things to say, important things to say, Sai, uh, sorry, listen to me. Josh started out actually with Broadside Magazine back when it started. As a matter of fact, uh, Broadside Magazine for me is one of the most amazing, amazing things in existence. Here's, look at it. <laughs> Mimeograph pages on one side, well, mainly on one side only. And this was Broadside Magazine, which came out once, twice a month, started in February of 63. I believe this issue, this is issue number 20. On the cover is Masters of War, Bob Dylan. I mean, everybody who was anybody who was writing in those days was in Broadside Magazine, and Josh was there to witness it. Can you please tell us about the, how it started and about the people coming up and, and what the office looked like? Well, the, the office changed. <clears throat> the first office was in a housing project on 104th Street. And uh, that was, I don't know if people here remember what housing projects were like. The closets had no doors, so because poor people should not have doors. And it was very, very limited. Um, the only income coming in was uh, Sis Cunningham, who was the co-editor, uh, doing Pete Seeger's correspondence. And that, that helped for quite a few years. Uh, there's this big old mimeograph machine, which was guaranteed to make your hands ready for fingerprinting. Uh, it was, uh, and, and I, I was introduced to it because I was writing uh, record reviews for uh, a left-wing monthly cultural magazine called uh, Mainstream, which went way back, I and mean, that went back to the masses, the masses and mainstream, and the new masses, and then finally mainstream. 
And I was writing, they were very open, uh, the editors there, and so they published me, an unknown writer, um, my first publication, and I was re reviewing uh, old-time music at Clarence Ashley's and James and the anthology um, in this little uh, little column that uh, Gordon and his sis read, and said, well, how would you like to do some writing for us? And I said, oh, yeah, I would like to do that. <laughs> And I went up there, and we hit it off. And I was—I called myself. They didn't like this. They called myself the utility editor because I would run the mimeograph machine. I'd write. If there's an article to be written, and I just—I was 22, and very, very impressionable. And here, all these other people in their 20s are coming, largely from the Midwest. Phil Oaks from Ohio, and Mark Spolster from Minnesota. Tom Paxton, who came earlier, he was kind of the older statesman from, in some ways, from uh, Oklahoma. And there was the trio. Uh, the New World Singers, who did their songs brilliantly, of whom one was Happy Trow, and then the late Gil Turner, who was a, a wonderful former preacher, who preached the social gospel, and hosted, uh, I think it was Monday Night Security, so I'm not sure I remember yeah, correctly. Monday nights. And that's, he introduced Bob Dylan, and Phil, and Mark, and Chandler, uh, all these people. Uh, and I just kind of enjoyed it. I just kind of, I was uh, non-biased enough in terms of my music taste to just appreciate great songwriting. And I was very active in the civil rights movement. And what uh, Phil uh, did, and I was pal, especially close with Phil, is uh, we just go around from town to town and start first the audiences were 20 or 30, and then they got bigger. Uh, in the beginning, uh, all of those guys, with the exception of Tom, passed the hat. It's like today. Today, <laughs> there's no guarantees. It's, it's ridiculous. But in, in those days, it was passing the hat. And I just want to end that little bit because Phil and I were standing on, on uh, McDougal Street and this young couple came up, well-dressed, and congratulated Phil on some of his civil rights songs and said, you know, uh, let me just say that if you put your foot on a snake and let go, uh, the snake would bite you. And Phil and I looked at each other. We didn't have any idea what this guy was saying. And he said, you know, that's like, that's like uh, Negro people today, which was a polite term. If you lift your foot, they'll bite you back. And we look at each other, and Phil wrote a whole bunch of songs right after that. <laughs> so I think that is that. You also, I have 10 copies of Broadside here, 10 different issues. And Josh has an article in every one of the 10, plus I had saw 10 more listed that he has articles in. And the articles are fascinating. Just to show you where he's been, the next one that you wrote, you wrote about broadside, you're going up there. Would you talk about the, the, the uh, tape recorder and how, how it? Well, they had an old-fashioned, real-to-real tape recorder, and their house was always open. Uh, no one, none of the writers I knew about, anyway, made an appointment. They just showed up. And if they, they'd written songs, they're very excited by them. And these aren't just the people who you know, but uh, there, there's a young uh, guy named Carl Watanabe, who's a very gifted songwriter, became a doctor, and then le left the songwriting behind. But th they would always get some food and some uh, coffee and tea, and they would sit down and record song after song after song. And Sis and Gordon uh, would uh, edit those out to the better songs and publish them. Now, the fact that they published twice a month was a little bit short of amazing. Uh, and they also write on the news. So if you look through those magazines, you'll see excerpts sometimes from news articles or photographs of, of news articles because that's what inspired the songs. That and the actual social movements, especially the civil rights movement, uh, that inspired us all. And 
You know, I remember uh, when Edgar Evers was assassinated, uh, Phil wrote a song called Too Many Murders. Mm -hmm. And it was right, it just expressed what we were feeling. Uh, we were very, very uh, uh, political in our beliefs, but we were not judgmental. We were just angry and we had to change it. Okay, you have a wonderful article here about the uh, Newport Folk Festival, 1963. Oh you want to elaborate on that? You were there. I was there, but <laughs> well, I remember 63 was a, was a big breakthrough for a lot of the topical songwriters because they, they, they finally had a topical song workshop and people could really hear them. I'm not sure that was the festival. Again, I, I said I try not lie, but I'm going to tell you I don't remember exactly, so you know, I might be lying a little bit. Uh, I think that's when Donovan and Baez and Dylan uh, combined. Donovan may have been a little bit later, but the Baez and Dylan got on the main stage and they were part of that workshop. And there was no place you could just, you, there was no place to sit. It was just literally a few thousand people spread out around the old houses they used to have the workshops in. And, you know, Broadside's top circulation, I think, in that period was 300. And where, where are all these thousands coming from? And uh, I don't know, Happy, do you have an insight on that? On Newport? Oh, on Newport, in that, that period? I didn't or, get where, to Newport. Where did they come from? Where, how did that? Oh, it was college. It was college. Colleges, yeah. Mostly college kids. And uh, we, you know, we slept on the beach, uh, and uh, it, was, it was very, very good. We, did, we, we, we stayed within our, our, our resources, but had a great time. And then you had a wonderful article here. I think it must have been, if not the first, one of the very first Philadelphia folk festivals. Now that, I, mm -hmm. <laughs> I should have reread those. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't remember at all. I remember Philadelphia was uh, a festival that really prided itself on uh, traditional musicians. Uh, for example, Joe Heaney got up all by himself with no accompaniment and just thrilled crowds of five to 10,000 people. And, and they would put it. They put Phil Oaks out, they put uh, Tom Paxton, of course, and many, many others. And were you new, new, new World Singers? No, 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 no. I, I did a little bit later with my brother, Phil. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But I know I never did it with the New World Singers. To this day, one of my favorite highlights from Philadelphia was Happy and Artie singing Alligator Man. Oh, yeah, that was so great. <laughs> <laughs> well, the name of the article that you had about Philly was Folk Music from Horse Pastures to Concert Halls. And then you went on and you talked about, after the festival, you talked about Town Hall. The hoop, talk about the hoops. Oh, well, that, there was something that um, was, was amazing. They had the Town Hall, which I, most of you may be familiar with. It's a beautiful medium-sized hall in New York City. They had working man's 90 cent, 99 cent hoops at 5.30 right after work. Mm. And those were jammed. And then uh, it was a whole mix of topical singers and traditional singers. I remember Gary, Reverend Gary Davis and Phil mm. and Tom and Bob. And uh, it was, uh, it gave you access. You had access. It wasn't successful enough to prevent you from coming if you didn't have the money. And I think that was a key to it because um, I think the students like myself in my early 20s would have been very skeptical of anything that was what we call the gate of horn, which is the gate of greed. Mm -hmm. uh, and that just, that wasn't there. That came later, uh, I won't say it didn't come, but in that period, the early 60s, mid 60s, it was, uh, it was very idealistic and it was a wonderful thing to be part of. Uh, I was quoted by Roger in, in, the, in the program saying I was like, I was 22 and I was in Nirvana. I mean, it, I couldn't have plotted this out. I didn't dream about it, it just happened. It was, mm -hmm. it was a very terrific thing to be part of. Yeah.
And then you also wrote a report on the New York Council of Performing Arts. And they're the ones who had the uh, civil rights projects which sent the caravans down to uh, Mississippi during the voting. That I don't, that, that well, I doesn't remember. read too many bills. You have to reread your articles. I have to reread those articles. <laughs> um, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> don't be sorry, it's okay. <laughs> May I? You carried that forward into your agency and, and becoming an agent that that uh, you didn't have jugglers and uh, uh, you know people. Uh, your your agency was distinctive because of uh, the standard you set. You want to say a few words about uh, real people music? Sure. I'd just like to credit Sing Out Magazine, though, too, because you talked a lot about broadside. I won't stop you. <laughs> uh, I, was, uh, I wrote a lot for Sing Out. I was discovered by Sing Out through Broadside Magazine. It was like Tinker's Ever's the Chance, mainstreamed to broadside to Sing Out. And it was published quite, quite frequently there. But uh, what I did in between, there was a period uh, in between uh, that I was activist, uh, always in the anti-war movement. Uh, but I started the Friends of Sing Out, and uh, that was uh, a real treat. And I don't know if Mark Moss may or may not be here. He's the current editor of Sing Out. But I remember him when he was about 16. I met him. And we, we got Philadelphia Folk Festival was always supportive, and they gave us a, a booth, a free booth. And it was, a, it was a hurricane. It was very interesting to be in that booth in the hurricane. And uh, it would rain. And we take the sink outs down, and it would stop right and put them up. And Mark was part of that. And so, as, as, as we went further, I was saying to the editors of Sing Out, which was cooperative at that point, look, let me help you raise some money. Let's do Friends of Sing Out concerts. You know, you have all these singers who are loyal to you, have some kind of reputation. And so I did that. And uh, Mark, at some point, uh, accredited Friends of Sing Out with keeping Sing Out alive through that very difficult uh, period. Um, and so, but after that, um, I had the experience at a festival where two of my favorite traditional singers, Joe Heaney and Old Bell Reed, called me the same week and said, oh, Josh, I'm never going to perform anywhere again. And one, Old Bell Reed, who was a very, very radical person, but very conservative socially, uh, came back to her room at the end of the night and found like four people spread out in sleeping bags on her floor. And that was a terrible thing. And Joe Heaney uh, would take umbrage very quickly in those years. And he took lots of umbrage the way he was treated by some of the people at this festival. Mm. So I said, oh, good, I'll start the agency. If they both ask me to represent them, I'll do that. And I started at a 10%. And for the first five years, when I wasn't trying to make money, I didn't lose a dime. Mm. And then my daughter was born, who's always had a great influence in my life, Catherine. And I said, I'll stay home and raise her. And I will make money, but no. <laughs> That's not what happened. But the first two people I represented were Joe Heaney and Old Bell Reed. And I've always represented people I enjoy listening to that move with passion by. And, uh, and that was, uh, there are others, of course, who followed many of you know, Sycon and Peggy Seeger over the years. Uh, and uh, I was never very successful. I remember going with to Pete. I mean, I did book people. I know Andy and Spence was wonderful. She booked a lot of my people, even though they weren't known at the time. And, and that's kept me enough to almost break even. But, uh, it was, but I still have it going. And uh, I, I love it because I love listening to music and explaining it to other people. That's, uh, so that, that's a continuity there that certainly is there. And they're all political in their own ways. Very good. 
So now you know who he is. He has a booth in the uh, exhibit hall, so make sure you stop by if you have any questions you personally want to ask him. Can we go and on? When to I wrote the history of Sing Out, I credited you too as uh, being a person, uh, one of the foremost persons of monetarily saving the magazine, bridging it from you know one point to another where it was having difficulties. And I thank you for that. Speaking of Sing Out Magazine, <laughs> one former editor, you were listening to music uh, in the 50s, um, revival music. How did, it, how did it start that you, you wanted to get involved? Um, I was a, an art student at the High School of Music and Art in New York. And um, of course there was a contingent of kids at the school from all over the came from all over the city and there was a radical element who were into folk music and they dragged me off to a Pete Seeger concert when I was in 1954 I guess it was in Brooklyn I, I was never went to Brooklyn before <laughs> I went to that and uh, it just got totally turned you know I'm, I'm one of thousands and thousands of people that got totally turned around by Pete Seeger um, he just completely captivated me and and opened up this world of do-it-yourself music that you could actually you know you don't have to have an orchestra you don't have to have a big recording contract you do all you need is a guitar or a banjo and you can make your music so that's what got me started so i immediately started taking guitar lessons um and uh playing there were some fabulous musicians in fact in when i was in high school at music and art uh, two of the people was were um eric weisberg who you might know from soundtrack for deliverance and um a million recording dates that he played on and pete arrow from peter paul and mary were both there when i was there as well as a lot of other terrific musicians i was just an art student i didn't know about this stuff but um i learned pretty fast and started playing and realized that um if you had a guitar in your hand and you could play fairly well and you could sing some of these folk songs there were some pretty girls that would come around and that was really a good incentive so uh, that's what got me started, and then I started going to summer camps and developing a following, and I always loved teaching. I was always a, a, you know, I barely learned myself, and I was trying to show other people how to play. And, and from the time I was in college, which was, I went to NYU up in the Bronx at the time, um, I was earning my book money and spending money by teaching guitar. So I just um, continued that, that track, and, um, and then, um, at one point, I had this idea for a column for Sing Out. Sing Out was a Bible, of course. You know that was what you just waited every month or whatever it was for it to come out and see who was mentioned in there. And I would never think that I would ever be mentioned in that magazine. Um, but one day, I got this idea that they needed to have a, a teaching column in the magazine. So I very timidly went up and knocked on Irwin Silver's door, who was the the editor of the magazine and kind of the, the force behind it for many years and told him my idea of this teaching column and he said well write something so i did and i got you got published and then it started a whole series of those columns and before i knew it i was i wrote a book that he published which is uh, still in print to this day called finger picking styles for guitar and um and uh and then Several years later, I guess 1967, maybe? Uh, I think I looked 67, 68. Yeah, they, they asked me to take over as editor with um, 
Ethel Rame, the wonderful Ethel Rame, as the um, music editor, and um, a whole slew of people. I couldn't have done it myself. There were a lot of people, including Josh, who were very, you know, totally supportive and helpful. So I did that for about three, three and a half years, uh, and turned them. I took the magazine into a slightly different direction because we started. Oh, Julius Lester was also a big force in the magazine at the time. Um, but I started to bring in people like Jerry Jeff Walker and Joni Mitchell and the singer-songwriters of the day, uh, the incredible string band, and started to publish songs by these people who were bringing folk music into a more contemporary vein. So that was, that was how I ended up uh, with my connection with Sing Out, which was a very exciting time for me, that I was actually editor of this magazine that I so revered. Um, um, and I, I just wanted to mention something about Broadside. Um, uh, 19, you said the first issue came out in February 63. February 63. Well, I think it was February 63 that we made the re first broadside record, which Folkways put out as a benefit for this. And, and the, my first day in a recording studio ever in my life, I remember meeting Phil Oaks on the sidewalk on the way into the studio. I went with the group I had just joined, the New World Singers, we were a quartet at the time. Uh, there was was Bob Cohen, who's now a kind of ecumenical cantor in Kingston, New York, just up the road from here, and the late Gil Turner, who you mentioned, and a, a wonderful African-American woman named Dolores Dixon, who was the fourth member. I joined that trio, and we became a quartet. And so I went up then. Bob Dylan was there. Pete Seeger was there. Uh, Phil, um, the Freedom Singers from Albany, Georgia, who had recently come to New York, Matt McGinn, who was a, a Scottish kind of topical singer. And, you know, there I was, like for my first day in a recording session, and we made the first recording of Blowing in the Wind. That we, Bob had taught it to us just like weeks before, and we recorded it. And I'll, I'll tell you two funny stories about Blowing in the Wind. One was that, um, when I listened back, you know, we sang it, and Dolores Dixon was the lead singer on the chorus, the answer, my friend, and she would sing blown in the wind. Not blowing, but blown in the wind. The answer is blown in the wind. And several years later, I saw, I saw her again. She had left the group, and then I saw her at some something. I don't remember where it was. And I said, you know, I was just listening back to that record, and why were you singing Blown in the Wind? Bob wrote it, Blowing in the Wind. And she said, my family would never have allowed me to sing Blowin' because it's not proper English. So I changed it in the studio because they were very conservative and I came from a church-going family. She really sang a lot of gospel stuff. And so it was a revelation. <laughs> if you listen to the New World Singers version of It's Blown in the Wind. And then the other story is Sounds after like we... Sounds like a rationalization to me. Sounds like a post-fact Well, I don't know. That's what you told me. And, um, it is good English. Blowing? Blowing, yes. Blowing. The, it's blowing, blowing in the wind. But it's the end with the apostrophe. It's the end with the apostrophe oh, she didn't like. Now, now class, we're going to have homework on this. You pay attention to the apostrophe. And the other blowing in the wind story that, that I love is that um, after we made that record, the New World Singers became a trio. She left the group, and 
It was Bob and Gil and I, and we got a, a contract with Atlantic Records of all these great Charles record company and uh, all these great soul musicians, jazz musicians. Herbie Mann was on, you know, the flute player was on Atlantic, and we suddenly found ourselves in Atlantic, and we were being uh, produced by Ahmed Erdogan, who was the genius of R&B and, and, you know, became, of course, you know, amazingly famous. And he was trying to get us to get a little more rock and rolly with our, and we were such purists that he said, oh, you gotta get some drums in there, you gotta get a Fender bass. And we said, no, we'll take an upright bass, but no Fender bass for him. We were so pure. But um, when we were going over the songs that we wanted to make on our album, which was called The New World Singers, came out on Atlantic, we sang him Blowing in the Wind. And I remember we were in this big empty room and uh, he was sitting in a chair and we were standing in front of him and we sang the song. We said, this is this, is this amazing song, you've got to hear this. We, this is, we want to make this our first single. And he listened to it very carefully and he said, that song will never sell. It's got to have. You got to change the words to make it a love song. I like the. Except I like the melody. The melody's really nice, but the words. Nobody's ever going to play that on the radio. And we didn't record it on the. We recorded it on the Folkways record, but not on the Atlantic record. And but but we did do. Don't think twice. Is all right. You like that one. We did a version of that. But this was one of the great minds of uh, musical history, but you can be wrong some of the time, I think. Your, your uh, two-part question, I guess. Your trio, uh, quartet trio, really did a lot to get some of these n new songwriters uh, heard. It, uh, because you, you were getting gigs, you were playing to audiences uh, that, uh, that these, uh, many of these folks were not playing to. So you, you really had a, a part in um, spreading those uh, right, we were singing we were mostly singing songs from uh, Phil and Tom Paxton and um, Peter Lafarge and all the people people that were writing songs and we were kind of filtering them into this what we were trying to do was a kind of a, a nouveau weavers uh, you know kind of uh, sensibility because Gil was really a Pete Seeger acolyte and he really worshipped Pete and, uh, and so you know there was all the Weavers was still fairly fresh in those days and it was still only a few years before that they were on the top of the charts so uh, but we were trying to you know we were trying to disseminate a lot of the popular songs that are the, the topical songs that were coming in uh, to play at that point I will not go down under the ground yeah that was a, I recorded that with Bob on the um, but we used to sing, William Worthy isn't worthy to enter our door. It was a very topical. I mean, nobody will ever, ten, five years later, nobody knew who William Worthy was, but uh, we sang all, you know, a lot of those songs. And, and speaking of major labels and brothers, yeah, lovely brothers, uh, you had another major label experience, and, uh, and of Newport, you had a, another Newport experience as a yeah, duo. Right. And well, my brother Artie, who who passed away four years ago, um, and I had a um, we start after um, after I left the New World Singers, we started a rock and roll band in the village called the Children of Paradise, um, and um, we I lasted maybe a year and a half, two years, and it just wasn't my thing, so I left. And then Artie, shortly thereafter, left. We both moved to Woodstock and started a duo with backup musicians, and. Um, we were picked up by Albert Grossman, uh, the um, manager who, who managed Bob Dylan. It was 
through Bob Dylan that we were introduced to Albert and and uh, he was Janis Joplin, Peter Paul and Mary, uh, uh, Tom Rush, Richie Havens. I mean, he had this huge group of people that he managed, and uh, so he took us on and got us a, uh, a contract with Capitol Records. So we made two albums for Capitol Records, which was really the big time, and it was probably bigger than we deserved or were able to handle. For, probably bigger than you got paid for. It, too, it was much actually. bigger than we got. Although we did, we did get an advance at the beginning that was that en enabled me to dig a well and start a foundation for the house that I live in now. <laughs> so it was big enough those days. I think I got five thousand dollars, and that was huge. And you got good press on the album. Huge. Oh, we did, the album is you can get it on eBay for thirty-five dollars now. <laughs> so I've seen it for seventy dollars. It's a collector's item. It's seventy dollars, but thirty-five if it has your signature on it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, people people do do. It's never it's never been out in this country as a CD yet, but it, but people do still, you know, revere it. I I you know it's got a lot of followers. So you want to talk about homespun? Uh, yeah. Well, right. Right around the time I my moved to Woodstock, uh, my I was teaching guitar, but then we started to Artie and I started to go out on the road a lot, um, and so I I started making tapes for my students that I was leaving behind, and then it occurred to me one day that I'm spending four or five hours trying to make a really good tape, one tape for one lesson for one person. Why don't I make one tape that I could sell to a lot of people? So I made a series based on the book that I wrote for uh, Oak Publications at the, back then it, called Finger Picking Styles for Guitar. And I made a, a series of tapes and started putting ads in Sing Out magazine. And that just started this whole thing rolling. I, mean, I don't want to get, it's, it's maybe too long a story. If you haven't heard about Homespun, where we went from reel-to-reel -reel tapes to cassettes to um, video cassettes, PAL, Beta and VHS. <laughs> then we went. Into, then we everything became DVDs, and now we're doing downloads, digital downloads. And we have probably 400 or more titles, over 200 instructors teaching, including Pete Seeger, who was what's a big thrill for us. Peggy Seeger, we just did something with her uh, last year. Um, Dr. John. Um, I mean, it's over 200 people. So it's a it's become my my. Guitar teaching back in the 50s sort of turned into a, a little bit of a bigger thing where I'm teaching a lot of people a lot of different things. So. My joy of being on your radio show, your public radio show, Bring It On Home uh -huh. out of Albany, uh, WAMC. Right. It was uh, a special. Wanda and Nick, both are broadcasters. Special. Uh, I. I after the Chinese food, everything went blank. <laughs> My recollection is you would arrive a few minutes early, uh -huh. scarf down some Chinese food, scribble a few notes down on a paper, yeah. you with your crew, Cindy Cashdollar and yeah, yeah. Damian Leslie, yeah. and in, in a few, we never knew how long the show was going to be. Because that right. didn't, right. didn't have to be an hour, didn't have to be two hours. You had a little audience. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in that small room there, um, but magic happened. Yeah, it was it was a real, it was a treat to do, and and um, I think I mean, I have to say, Artie had a lot to do with the spirit and the and the impetus for doing a lot of things like that. Several the albums we made afterwards with the 
uh, Woodstock Mountains Review, which was a whole, we made four records for uh, Rounder. Um, he was a tremendous mover and shaker in terms of getting people together. And so we had fabulous guests. Some you know. of those guests were? Well, Rick, Rick Danko of the band came up, uh, Livingston Taylor. Um, da David Bromberg, uh, Maria Moldauer. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, Maria Moldauer. Yeah, they, I mean, it just was, mm. we, we did it for three or four years. Two, two CDs came out of it. Um, Great liner notes. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun to do. And, and um, <clears throat> we've, I've felt part of the WAMC family ever since. Yeah. I think we need a musical break. Yeah, how about a song? Since we have a guitar on stage. You know, I was just thinking, when we were talking about broadsides here, I was thinking about the record that we made with the New World Singers um, for Atlantic. And um, one of the songs we did back then, I've kind of revived, it's a Woody Guthrie song. And it's amazing how so many of Woody Guthrie songs are still relevant to the what's going on today. And um, I just thought, this is one... We recorded 50 years ago. I mean, it would be 50 years next year. And I still, still sing it, so I'll see if I can still play it. Let's see. It's a little different. It's, it's evolved, let's say, but it's still Woody Guthrie song that we always loved. Just a rolling round, just a wandering working man. I roam from town to town, and the police make it hard, boy, wherever I may go. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore. I've been farming on the share, always I was poor. My crops I laid into the banker's door. My wife took down and died all on the cabin floor And I ain't got no home in this world anymore My brothers and my sisters, they're stranded on this road It's a hot and a dusty road that a million feet done trod The rich man took my home, drove me from my door and I ain't got no home in this world anymore. That's right. Now as I look around mighty plain to see this world is such a strange and a funny place to be the gambling man is rich the working man is poor and i ain't got no home in this world anymore i said i ain't got no home i'm just a roaming around just a wandering working man i roam from town to town and the police make it hard, boy, wherever I may go. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore. I said I ain't got no home in this world anymore. 
play. Well, what I'd like to do at this point is get a little conversation going here. And the thing I wonder about, I mean, we all talk about the great things that went on in the 60s, and you were all there. How did it feel at the time? How did, when did you first realize that it was something beyond regular, that it was something special happening? Did that come suddenly, or did that... Uh, hmm. Any one of you can jump in on this one. Well, gee, uh, you reminded me about uh, folk song clubs in high school. And I remember singing, uh, A Mighty Ship Was the Gundamar in, uh, in high school, and learning all, all of those songs, or at least hearing them, and then wanting to get the lyrics. And I remember listening to uh, Oscar Brand, who replaced Woody Guthrie on WNYC. And uh, at the end of the program, they would say, if you'd like the lyrics to any of the songs that we hear, you could, and you, uh, you could write to the station, and they'd send you a badly mimeographed <laughs> copy that looked not quite as good as Sing Out, but after a while they stopped and they said, uh, well, you can get them from Sing Out. So I remember that. Uh, you know, I can that. remember being, you know, ground zero for folk music in New York was, of course, Bleecker and McGougal Street. And um, they would, between those two places and between Gertie's Folk City on Mercer Street and... Uh, you know, there was there was the bitter end. There was the Cafe Wa. There was the Gaslight Cafe. There was uh, Gertie's. There was um, you know a whole string of places. Some places that you never heard of, but they they had music um, and past the basket kind of places. And I can remember um, and and you'd walk down the street. This was 59, 60, 61, 62 in those years. You'd walk down the street and constantly be running into people you knew. It was like a big club. It was like you know. You know, and, and when you go to Gertie's Folk City uh, on a Monday night and they would have the so-called Hootenanny Nights, which was, of course, everybody wanted to get the prime spot at the prime time because the place was filled with bookers and managers and record company guys. And it was, seemed like it was like, oh yeah, let's all sing together now. But it was really like, you know, this is a, a growing, burgeoning kind of business that people were in. But still there was a sense of camaraderie. There was a sense of who's, Who's the hottest thing? You know, Bob Dylan was the hottest thing, and then there's somebody else was hot, and like you know, who's coming along, just like you're right. Um, and and I can remember, I can I can remember actually thinking, this is a great time to be here. It was really fun. It was there was so many intelligent, creative people on the streets, and people coming. You know, suddenly there was Tom Paxton coming from Oklahoma, as you mentioned, and uh, people Peter Lafarge, this strange. Indian guy, you know, at least, you know, we saw him as somebody very exotic, or Buffy St. Marie, speaking of uh, Native Americans, or, you know, Patrick Scott, another Native American, um, and, and, you know, it was just like, the place was just filled with great people doing amazing musical things, and, and ideas flying everywhere, and I think that was, you know, the, the atmosphere that we felt, and it, and it's, it, it might still exist, maybe it exists today in Brooklyn, uh, among all the different know, you know, I mean, people. That, and it, it wasn't just these great hip folk singers. No, right. Uh, it was these, this great hip audience mm. that really appreciated it and, and mm -hmm. knew some of the songs. And, right. uh, 
and it was so turned on by it that it spread to other cities. Yeah. It was a it was a very uh, uh, fertile time. It, it, well, for me, the big change. Uh, I grew up in a family who said, you know, we grew we, in our youth. There were tens of thousands of people around Union Square, and the police had machine guns on the rooftops on unemployment demonstrations. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know, I don't see anything like that either way. And then I went to the 63, August 63 March on Washington uh, with the West Side Committee for Civil Rights. And there were 250,000 people and lots and lots of police. <laughs> and and was, there was something, I think that's where I thought it changed. I think that really, really did. Because it was followed by the peace demonstrations for hundreds of thousands and where folk singers with acoustic guitar would just get up and perform. And um, that to me was very, very different. It was a mass movement. My parents used to say, watch for the next mass movement. I kept on watching, but then there it was. <laughs> but when did you realize that it was something special? I mean, how, how, did, how did you all get drawn there? What made you go there? What made you go there? To where? To, to, the, to the village. Well, that was where it was happening. Washington Square Park on Sundays was the place where people would gather and, you know, you'd have dozens and dozens of people playing guitars and banjos and mandolins and fiddles and basses and, you know, bongos and whatever else was going on there. And, and be pe people were getting arrested to play their music. Well, that's true, yeah. yeah. You know, because the city decided that the apartment dwellers around the square had more rights than the artists that they uh, that were living and working in the village. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it was definitely a culture clash there. Right. Well, were you there for the riots? I was. I'm in the film. Ah. <laughs> there's, a picture, there's a picture of the cop pushing me over the fountain. And I'm looking back very indignantly like, wait a minute, my parents told me the cops were nice. <laughs> if you're lost, ask a policeman. He's pushing me. <laughs> I didn't grow up like Josh did, where the police were the, the capitalist big enemy. Well, they had machine guns, and that was <laughs> it's a little different. I started going to village uh, as an early teenager because I lived in, a, in a, a, a literal sandbar, Long Beach, New York, which now is something almost wiped out. But it was a very anti-intellectual area. We were one of the few homes that had bookcases and books in them, actually. And so I used to go take the Long Island Railroad on Saturday night and. Uh, it wasn't so much the music in the 50s, but it was a living theater. It was um, Figaro, which used to have Charlie Chaplin films, which were free. And it was kind of, and I felt very good coming home. And then I had to spend the rest of the week in Long Beach, and I went back down. So I, that's, I, that's what started me on it. Bob, we're looking at you. I remember something called Stinson Records. Oh, yeah. Which was a... A kind of a, a record shop in the, in the 14th Street area near Union Square, and um, uh, lots and lots of wonderful folk records that I couldn't afford. And then uh, I found my way to the village, and I went into Izzy Young's shop, and you know, <laughs> and I pulled out oh four or five records and uh, as I was going he said you're gonna buy those <laughs> and I said no I, I might be able to buy one I'm trying to decide what he said you want to borrow them <laughs> and I said what he said yeah take them with you I trust you and uh, uh, he was uh, it was amazing much like uh, 
Moash, who um, also said yes first by saying no. And, and I said, well, gee, uh, this, the way of Ihiji, Zen Buddhist chants, I'd like to listen to this. He said, I can't give you that. You're not going to play that on the radio. He said, here, take it. <laughs> and I would, I, would, I would walk out with more records than I could carry. And every one of them, when I played, I mean, the audience, I mean, if I had just played them and, and they had lain there, I would have been not surprised. But people love that stuff. I mean, they wanted to hear more of it. And... Uh, and that's how it all began. <laughs> lots of, lots of uh, people with uh, shiny suits, shiny shoes, and uh, uh, double-breasted suits uh, made a lot of money out of folk music. But I don't think you guys really did, did that much. I mean, you did a lot, but you didn't make that much money out of it. No, you don't hear a, you don't hear many folk singers saying, uh, "Where are the keys to my Porsche?" <laughs> but Bob, you know, I remember uh, going up to your your show late one night. Um, well, I remember a couple of times. One time, Bob, I think Bob was on the show, and one time I remember we Jerry Jeff Walker and David Bromberg were there, and it was the first time Jerry ever played Mr. Bojangles in a public. Forum and we were all pretty blown away by it. You know, it was it was just a, it was a fun place to go up and hang out. It well, it's true. Uh, Jerry Jeff would come up drunk, and he would lie down on the floor and go to sleep. And uh, Dave Bromberg would play, and then sometimes Jerry Jeff would get up and he would play something and go and lie down again. Kind of like today. I, I, the, sorry, go on. No, I just, just Tiny Tim. Don't forget. I remember who could forget Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim had some of the best anti-war songs that you can imagine. Uh, I had one song, "My Dream of the Big Parade." The big parade was World War One, and he sings about one-legged pals coming home to their gals. In my dream of the big parade. Didn't you one night, I think I have a recording from your show, Bob, where you had Dave Van Ronk and Phil and Pat Sky on simultaneously, and they got into a... <laughs> yes, uh, they sang uh, uh, another song about being mutilated in war. No, no, I'm talking about the interaction between the three of oh, them. Oh, yeah. The uh, well, teasing was, and what was, have you that went on. That was wonderful. These were people who like hung out with each other and enjoyed each other's company when they weren't playing music as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember the greatest, one of the greatest thrills was to be walking down McDougal Street and have somebody uh, sitting in the kettle of fish say, come on here and sit down and talk to us. Wow. And I worked in a bookstore on McDougal Street and I immediately went to see whether they had books of folk music. I think there were two. They might have had uh, uh, The Art of the Five-String Banjo, Pete Seeger's 
wonderful book. And uh, that was about it. Probably a Carl Sandberg song bag. Right. And, and right. Lomax. Anybody here remember the Gaslight Cafe? Yeah. Oh, oh, sure. sure. Mississippi John Hurts. Mississippi John. I used to go and listen to... Yeah, that was... I heard Van Morrison play there for about 15 people. Wow. <laughs> it was, so that yeah. still exists, but uh, Folk City's gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. is still there. Yeah. Bitterendus still there. Is that still there, Gil? No, no. Village Gate, Cafe Vivo, yeah. There were so the many Wah. places. Cafe Wa, mm -hmm. Cafe Bazaar. I remember that. Bazaar. <laughs> then there was also the Third Side. Did you ever play there? It was a past the hat place on Third Street. Third Side. I yeah. remember that. Yeah. At this point, how about a few questions, and yeah. then we can come back to. Jill. Um, do you all feel that? Um, the whole folk music movement picked up steam and functionality as a result of the intensification of the civil rights, sure. violence, riots, and all that. Sure. I think it was a big factor in it. I think it was going, it had been going on before the civil rights movement really hit. It was, it kind of was building through the 50s into the 60s. There's a lot of anti-war stuff, anti-nuke particularly right. stuff. And, but when the civil rights thing came, it was like a, sort of perfect storm, if you will, of the, of the, because the music was sort of, the, the folk revival was feeding the music that was coming out of the southern black churches, and they were in turn feeding the, the northern, mainly white, middle class kids. And so suddenly there were, you know, you could get the freedom singers, Bernice Johnson, Regan, and her group coming up from Albany, Georgia, who were such powerful singers, and they were teaching us songs, but they learned We Shall Overcome from Pete and Guy Carawan and people like that. So it was a tremendous interchange at that point of, of different um, forces coming together. And it was, it was pretty, that was pretty exciting. I, I was, it's a little before my time, but I always wondered, you know, uh, how, how the, uh, the beat scene, the beat generation, and those, right, Allen Ginsberg and all that, you know, what was the metamorphosis from going from that beat generation to the David Emmerich could tell us better. Dave's older than any of us. <laughs> I'm here for the wisdom of the elders. I'm older than the elders. <laughs> you get older, you don't get wiser. You just have a chance to hang out more time with people who are smarter and eventually try and pick up. But in 1959, when Kerouac and I did that film, Pull My Daisy, the still photographer was Robert John Cohen. Oh, oh John Cohen. Robert John Cohen was with the New Lost City Ramblers. And when I read all those, all those books about what the beat generation was supposed to be, which we never knew existed, we went to the Trilateral Commission or the National Association of Matters. We were just people all hanging out <coughs> desperately, hoping we could encourage each other to pursue our impossible dreams. And the folk players, Cisco Houston, Jack Elliott, Gene Ritchie, all these great people, and all the places like the Gaslight and those places, we would all hang out with each other, go to Fiend John's and play the release music, go to the Village Gate, and we play the Dizzy there, and all the jazz, Latin, Cajun, Middle Eastern musicians all appreciated one another. It was a community of 
the way things are becoming right now, thanks to the demise of the record industry, the growth of YouTube, and the fact that today's young folks have an option to see things of beauty and have a choice for the first time. But what Bob Fest did or his show is to get people to come up and play all night long who would never play together, whom you would never think if you were an ethnomusicologist possibly would be together. And I was privy to be some of those programs where they had people from every genre in the world all playing together, hanging out together. And that was indicative of the times, a sense of, of community. That's why NERF is so terrific, because it's about that rather than the National Association of Manufacturers. <laughs> and it seems like that spirit is here again, not as a, a revival of the B generation or some relics of the 60s, but the fact that more than 3 million people voted for someone who presumably wouldn't get one vote because of all the money spent to stop him. And the dictatorship of the music industry, when they co-opted folk music, co-opted everything else, and co-opted progressive politics, didn't really annihilate it because there was a spirit, a human spirit, which is there, which has always been there, which is back now in a different way. So what you see when you go out to Brooklyn and all these little places all around the country are what Pete Seeger always said, small is beautiful. Think globally, but act locally. Those little things are now not only precious, it turns out that they make sense. And looking at the last election, miraculously enough, all these people who were supposed to be so way out are now apparently exhibited some kind of common sense. So the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> so-called And the reason you didn't see David Amram around here last night, he was kind of busy. He was in symphony space yeah. being honored with That's a major right. concert. Congratulations, David. There, there was another effect of the... Of I was the being honored from people that were so great, like Pete Seeger and every other musician that was there, and all the people who supported that, because apparently there's a whole lot of folks that are looking for something better. There always have been. And now we're not like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man or Invisible Woman. We've always been here, and now there's the option for us to be here again. So I'm just one of many thousands of people that were privy to being something beautiful and try to share that with other other folks coming up to let them know they have something to contribute to. All right. Yeah. David, you had your turn two years ago. It's our turn. <laughs> uh, the Beat Generation had a tremendous effect on, on people like myself who were uh, isolated at where I was, where my hometown, isolated at my college. And uh, we had a, the women were not part of that, it was before liberation, but the men were expected to go hitchhike cross country at some point soon, and I did that. Uh, and uh, and the, the folk music part of it is I had a tiny little recorder and recorded every, everyone who gave me a ride. So it was, it was kind of came together that way. Um, and I, I remember there, there were outgrowths of the Beat Generation, the Fugs, who played a big role and, and, and were very, very popular. And I think, you know, we went into Jerry Garcia and his approach at Grateful Dead. Um, they had a tremendous, that on the road had a terrific impact on me. Poetry was 
cheek by jowl with folk music in places like the Gaslight. Bob Kaufman would read his right. People would snap their fingers in, in an effort not to uh, upset the, the mother of the Don who lived upstairs, who uh, would uh, come in. Uh, he would call the cops, and the cops would close the place. So they would be snapping rather than applauding. Um, but uh, it, it, I mean, the the scene itself was a was a product of low rents. I think I don't think anything like that could happen today because the the spa space is the final frontier. Wanda, <laughs> <laughs> you had a question. What what role do you think the traditional music played in inspiring people to get? interested in this uh, this genre of music because mm -hmm. it seems to me that there was a lot of collecting of traditional music and people kind of got into the sound of, uh, of the music and that's, that helped people to get interested in, in I, I think uh, part, part of it, I, I don't know that this is really true enough to say, but you know, I'm, this is the wisdom of the elders, so I can be, uh, you know, a little bit incoherent once in a while. Uh, there, there are equivalents for, like, there are songs that are like other songs, in theme, anyway, in all of the cultures. There would be, so, I mean, the, di the, the obvious difference is where there'd be, a, like, an Appalachian version of uh, a Mississippi Delta song. It would, I mean, that's, but beyond that, the themes of the songs were repeated so that they could be, they could transcend the uh, ethnic barriers between peoples. And uh, there was a, a culture that was based not on ethnicity, but on, you know, on what you liked and the music you liked, the culture. It was a culture that was based on culture. And uh, uh, I think that that has some future. Uh, I noticed something that really amazed me uh, came out uh, in the roots and uh, branches of traditional music, which relates to your question, Wanda. Uh, I was stunned to find out there are all these young people going to college falling in love with traditional music by accessing the Lomax collection, which is now very, very approachable and easy, easy to get. And some of them, like there's a group that I was very impressed with called Tumbling Bones, who are a trio from out of New York City. Uh, there are others, Dan McDonald and, and others, Ben Barkley from uh, uh, Boston area. And they all said, it was very interesting, they all said, well, we were rejected by the folk music establishment, meaning us, us guys. And, and, and yet what they did, they did something different. It wasn't, it wasn't like the Ramblers going note for note for the traditional music. Uh, they, they expanded it, and it was, but it was within the framework, and it was it's wonderful music. So uh, in, terms of, in terms of setting the tone and the framework, I think it's had a lot to do with it. I mean, if it was jazz that had that impact, it, the instrumentation would be entirely different, and the feeling would have been entirely different. And a jazz singer is a very talented singer, very hard to sing a jazz version of Blowing in the Wind, I think. <laughs> Oh, but there are there are probably two thousand of them. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
decided to stop buying instruments for kids in schools and that's when I think kids discovered that they could make music by hitting their bodies and uh, they discovered that before that <laughs> what, what? They, they discovered that long before they stopped buying instruments they were hitting but not no one made up music the way David Amram does <laughs> Question in the corner? Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I've read, I mean, I'm 25, I know nothing about <laughs> anything when it comes to the scene, but I've read so many um, autobiographies or, you know, shared books. And I read one, uh, the Elijah Wall book that's Mayor McDougal Street, it's based on yeah. Dave Van Ronk. And he talks a lot, I think that, that book from that time, it talks more about um, a political stance. You know, he talks a lot more about what was happening politically in the scene as opposed to what was happening happening musically and how politics actually was what organized a lot of musicians in that time. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, there was a divide, I think, between the, the, the musicians who were political and, who, and the people who were tra more traditional and feeling like, I mean, when you think about it, it's a, it's a conundrum for for city folks like us. And because the people who we were learning the music from in a traditional way were the opposite politically from what we were. Right. <laughs> this is a concern, you know, like going back and, and learning music because it's old and because it's traditional and because it's going from generation to generation is basically a very conservative thing. <laughs> and, and so here we were, you know, like kind of, in this, you know, interest in civil rights and peace, the peace movement and, and the labor movement and all that kind of thing. But if you went back to the guys who were playing fiddle and banjo in North Carolina, you know, you wouldn't talk to them about that. So, and, and guys like Mike Seeger, who of course came from a very political family, but he and the New Los City Ramblers were very consciously not political because they didn't want to, um, they, they wanted to take it into the more, you know, traditional route. So it was it was both things. It was the progressives who were who were, you know, following the Pete Seeger model in a way. And then they were the you know, the old blues if you go to a blues club in Chicago, I mean it eventually became I mean James Brown was started to sing very topical songs and, and Marvin Gaye and people like that. But back in the earlier days they weren't singing over they they were afraid they'd get lynched if they sang overtly political things. So it was kind of a strange, strange dichotomy, I think, between the political and the and the straight traditional world. There was even uh, two magazines that fought each other uh, indirectly. A little Sandy Review mm -hmm. was uh, very. It was edited by Paul Nelson. I forget the other gentleman. Uh, John Pancake. And John Pancake and a brilliantly <coughs> written magazine it used yeah, to make me angry, but I, I always you always learn from people who make you angry. I think anyway. Mm -hmm. So that you really that was really one side. And they used to pan all the political songwriters, and they were sing out in the broadside. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you want to go back, you know, on the internet and, and see some of these magazines, I think you can get a real picture. 
the, the politics of the people we're talking about here drove them. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, that Phil and yeah. Tom, and yeah. it, just, it just wasn't any doubt. Yeah, and I think your point is very well taken, even yeah. though you're very young. You're still yeah. <laughs> and, and you have to ask, Dave Van Ronk, who that book was about, was, was nothing but political. He was, he was a very, I mean, left-wing, iconoclastic, I mean, you couldn't pin him down very much, but he would consider himself a Trotskyite socialist, and and you know whatever that meant to him, I don't, you know, he he was a very very smart guy, but also, you know, you had to take a lot of, a lot of grains of salt with with you know his analysis of things, but um, but he was certainly political, but his music was very rarely ever political. He was singing, you know, the old blues stuff, and and you know swinging on a star, yeah. So he was kind of, the, but you're right, that Elijah Wald book, I think it was a terrific book. It, it came out after Dave, you guys read it? It's, it came after, out after Dave died, um, and Elijah kind of reconstructed a lot of things from when they were working on it together, called The Mayor of McDougal Street. And um, it's got a perfect, pitch perfect sound at Van Rock's voice. It's really terrific. It's a really good book. Um, Ron? Oh, yeah, I, I have a question mainly directed at Bob, but I think yeah. it will affect all of you. Well, first of all, Bob, I, I, I can remember getting my first FM radio when I was in junior high and hearing you and WBAI and helping change my politics, so I thank you for all that. But you've been doing radio for so long, you've been seeing a lot of changes, even at WBAI. How different is it today than it was back then? And how different is the audience today compared to those early days? The audience is smarter and more suspicious, I think, and um, they're uh, they're doing things on their own. They're not waiting to be told. Uh, um, you know, in the that movie, one of the things that uh, I like best is where the people decide to uh, clean together and do some sort of a project together. But uh, no one had to tell the marathoners who weren't, uh, who weren't able to do their uh, marathon to go and to help the people who were burnt out of their homes. It was, uh, you know, it was just, it's in the air now. There's something that people catch, have caught on to that really, uh, Government can't do a lot of things as well as people can, and um, so that's that's part of it. And of course, the audience has many, many, many more avenues to get information from everything from uh, you know Google to uh, Gargle is, <laughs> is out there on the on the the web. And it's um, it it brings out well, it brings out what's going on. The streaming from Occupy Wall Street. Uh, you could you 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 could see cops spraying people uh, with pepper spray almost before the pepper spray was uh, was uh, washed away. You know, it was it was right there as it happened. And uh, instant communication is something that radio was able to do better than, uh, you know, the newspapers. But uh, 
Now it's, uh, it's all at once. We're living in an all at once world. This is a follow-up question from the one earlier. Um, if we take the movements in the 60s as at least partially a product of the political climate, what is it that you think is causing that to not happen now? We have a political climate that is certainly one that should be producing some anger, some creativity, and a movement not well, only in the 60s, but it's not happening the way it did. Well, uh, the forces of repression are also better organized than they were then, you know? Uh, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's it. I, I think that, the, that it's become much more um, um, ecumenical in a way. I think, you know, when you get rappers talking about social issues and you get um, soul singers talking about, you know, that it's, it's not just the domain of a guy with a guitar singing a a topical song to an old ballad that Woody Guthrie might have had a tune to. It, it's it's sort of like it's across the board now. There are people doing all kinds of music, and I don't think it's not happening. I think it's just more diversified, so you don't. It's not concentrated in one area, so that you know you go to the streets of Berkeley or the streets of Greenwich Village, and you and you hear all this music. But I think you know it's all over the country. It's just sort of everywhere you go to any little town and people are writing songs but I do agree it's not quite the same um, the same sensibility that was going on back then and it was something new it was something different everybody they were following Woody Guthrie's lead to a large extent um, I think Mark Moss could probably talk to this better than anybody because he sees probably hundreds of songs coming through sing out all the time um, I think people are still writing them I just don't know if there, if if there's, you know, there's, there's so many other ways to express yourself now. Maybe it's not hitting the same nerve. There used to be concerts, big concerts, the Carnegie Hall, 1965, et cetera, et cetera, where people would come together to, you know, protest certain issues or to support protest. And I think that may be part of what he's saying that that isn't. But isn't that? Would have to be a hundred dollar ticket. Yeah. yeah. yeah no, but, but music was changed. Music, music, I think, was a big contribution to the changing political climate mm -hmm. of the 60s and 70s and going forward. And I think that what he's saying, what I, I almost I, I really agree with him, is that where is it now? I mean, where, why, don't, why don't we have this, this change that's being created by the music that we've always had before? We'd like to see it, and we don't know where it is. I, I have to jump in here. The big factor that's changed everything is the lack of a draft now. Because back in the day, everybody was affected. You were afraid your son, your husband, your brother, somebody was going to get drafted. No longer an issue. And that's what drove people to participate. That's what drove people to be activists. And that's gone. And that's why you don't have it. He also thought it was going to work. We had that too. Time for one or two more questions. Okay. I, I, what you just said about the lack of a draft uh, has been something that's been on my mind. Um, and so if we did put it back, my reservation is um, I think there needs to be an element of a person that does not want to serve because they are nonviolent being able to serve in a Corps Engineers or a, like a, a domestic Peace Corps or something like that. I'll, I'll just put that out there because mm -hmm. I, I think the draft could be important, but I also think that there needs to be a a, um, a venue for people that are nonviolent and don't want to take up arms. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 
Mary? I think the, the consolidation of media has a lot to do with it mm -hmm. because exactly. in the 60s there were independent stations and there was what we now call progressive rock starting on its own in various pockets around the country and spread from there. These days uh, you've got every small nook and cranny programmed by some guy in Texas and there's no, there's no local content and there's it's not connected really with people. The same thing with, with print media. There were ways we could get things out. Newsweek is gone, the Washington Post is dropping percentage-wise ever in the number of pages. The coverage of all of these things is way, way down. All right, Eric. Happy, when did you move to Woodstock? <laughs> Thank you for changing the subject. <laughs> Um, I moved to Woodstock in 1967. You mean in New York City or, or the whole, the, the global thing? The folk community in the United States. Oh, I don't, I never felt it was over. I, I moved to, this, to the country for other reasons and I formed my own folk community with other, you know, other people. I mean, when I was moving to Woodstock, not only were the well-known people like Bob Dylan and um, uh, other other people with Paul Butterfield and all these people were there, but um, we had a little folk community. Bill Keith, the great banjo player, was there, and uh, and uh, Eric Kaz and John Harold, and I mean, there was just there was a tremendous community there, and we just kept it going. I mean, you know, um, and and the other thing I think is. That's been going on. It's been growing all through the country. I, I think this underground thing. If you, I mean, look at this. I mean, you walk through the halls here. You just see such a life of people who are interested in this music. And if you went national, I mean, I know the the National um, Folk Alliance shows that. But even just going into some communities, and you get the bluegrass thing happening with the bluegrass festivals. You get blues festivals. You get, you know, uh, folk stuff going on. You get these group, the young kids that are into old-timey music, um, fiddle music and banjo music and stuff. It's just, I think it's very, still really alive and happening. Yes? Yeah, one thing I wanted to say before is, is I want to say what's really still the same. And I was really struck by, by what you said, Happy, when you said the first thing that influenced you about Pete Seeger was the idea of the, the person alone with the one instrument uh, being able to make some expression. And I think as long as there, there, there is that, and I think that's, that's just as big today as it always was, maybe bigger in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the individual person, not the group, that really picks up that instrument, makes his own music, makes his own statement, expresses his or her her own philosophy and I think that's really and, and that may be a different philosophy in the future but that element is I think is the same it's just as strong as it ever was yep. Mike um, from the, what I could see in this very conference here uh, that political element is still there but it is a much smaller percentage mm -hmm. of the community yeah. mm -hmm. um, there's, it's not like a massive movement. Uh, and that's just an observation. I don't, not saying this is good, bad, or otherwise, but it seems that the political content of the folk movement has diminished radically since the 60s. Okay, well that was an interesting question. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I like the comments. Uh, yes. At, at the, <laughs> 
<laughs> At this point, I'd like to ask our gentlemen if they'd each like to make some kind of closing comment about being an elder, about... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my my short-term memory is going, and my long-term memory, and my short-term memory. <laughs> so, you know... It's a, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean... I don't... You know, I, I realize that the years say it, but I don't feel I'm an elder, and I don't feel I'm very wise. So, uh, you know, I, I just have been, I feel a little bit like Forrest Gump, you know, going through life, and all these fabulous things have happened to me because I got involved in music in 1954 by going to a Pete Seeger concert. And I've met such a fabulous variety of people who have inspired me and, and befriended me and worked with me on things. And it's just, to me, uh, my life has just been so enriched by, by the music that I, I just feel endlessly grateful for it. Josh? Well, I, I echo that, especially about not being wise or too old. <laughs> but um, I would say uh, it, it, it's, there's no, certainly there's no mass movements similar to the 60s today. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Occupy was spontaneous, but, and it was some places that got a lot of people, but a lot of places it didn't, and it, it kind of fizzed out a bit. Um, I'd like to say one thing that has kept me going and reflecting on these issues and learning is Sing Out Magazine. And if you don't subscribe to Sing Out Magazine, I think that would be a good thing because people are raising very intelligent issues here and they deal with those. And you get the latest songs from a wide variety of people. They have a record with each uh, issue and I like about half the songs on the record. But with the CD, you can always skip, it's nice. <laughs> Mark Moss is sitting over there. He might have subscription sheets with him. I don't know, I hope he does, or you could get a card from him. Uh, it is just a wonderful, wonderful magazine uh, and creative and uh, is centered on the kinds of issues we explored here. Bob? Well, a uh, couple of things. First, uh, I, I was listening to uh, a song called um, uh, that, that lonesome whistle, I heard that lonesome whistle blow. And I realized that it rhymed in a way with Duquesne whistle mm. on Dylan's album. And Dylan singing that other song, and uh, uh, this is not, I, 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 didn't, I didn't invent this, um, but we used to say, well, who's the new Dylan? And um, there have been lots of new Dylans, but the, but the new Dylan is the old Dylan, and the old Dylan is the new Dylan. And another thing uh, I should say uh, was I never thought that if I got to be an elder, I wouldn't be able to call Phil Oaks up and say, hey, Phil. Uh, what's going on? So a, a lot of things uh, like that went through my mind on the way up here and in my conversations with my wife. So uh, that's uh, also um, uh, another thing you learn when you get to be old is never let a chance go by. <laughs> Whether it's for a 
a men's room. <laughs> there are old All for a chance to hear music. Uh, are there old prostates on stage here? That wise ones. Sunny. Yeah. Well, as I qualify, if anybody had ever told me that at age 75 I would be sitting up here doing this, I was what are you out of your mind? But it, it just and, and my mentor is Faith Petrick, who is now 97 and still playing. And you know, it doesn't matter what your age is, just keep doing it. Try new things. Get out there. Don't sit home on your butt. Just whenever somebody says, let's do something, even if you don't think of something you're interested in, do it. Go out and do it because you might not have the chance again, and you might find that you love it, and you might find a whole new road to travel. And that's my two cents. Roger, maybe we'll let you have a two cents. I just want to thank Happy and Josh and Bob for accepting elderdom. <laughs> and for they're here. Uh, the, the elderdom request, I guess. And, and, and thank you for your eloquence. Your, uh, I have to say, this was a wonderful way to spend two hours with like old guys. And, and, and I was, as I was delighted to find out, I wasn't really actually the old guy, although I are. And uh, Sonny, thanks for, uh, for inviting us and yeah. me. Something you might not know, it's by a wonderful songwriter in, in England, the name of Alan Taylor, one of my favorite English songwriters, singers. I've been doing this song for, for a while now, he, since, uh, ever since we were on a little tour together. So learned from him. And the chorus is like this. It's good to see you, so good to see you. Oh, how I missed you since I've been gone. I crossed the ocean, traveled to many lands. It's good to see you, to be in your home. There's something in me needs to wander. There's many a land that I have to see When I'm far away in a land of strangers I know my good friends that think on me And it's good to see so good to see Oh, how I've missed you Oh, how I've missed you Since I've been gone Since I've been gone I crossed the ocean I crossed the ocean Travel to many lands Travel to many lands It's good to see To be in your home To be in your home When a man is down down on his fortune He stands alone Sometimes alone 
He looks around him Searching for an open hand Sometimes there's one Oft times there's none So it's good to see so good to see Oh, how I've missed you Oh, how I've missed you Since I've been gone Since I've been gone Across the ocean I crossed the ocean Traveled to many lands Traveled to many lands It's good to see you To be in your home it's a wonder when it comes to friendship No matter how far away, no matter how long There's a constant thread, never been broken It ties me to my friends at home and it's good, good to see you, so good to see you. Oh, how I've missed you since I've been gone. I crossed the ocean, traveled to many lands. It's good to see you. Be in your home. It's good, good to, to see you. To be in your home. Thanks so much. And that was Happy Traum closing out the 2012 edition of Wisdom of the Elders. What an interesting discussion that was. It was series creator Sunny Oaks with her guest interviewer, Roger Dietz, and they were talking with Josh Dunson, Happy Traum, and the late Bob Fass. Again, uh, there were some dated references in there. Now, you heard Josh talking about Sing Out magazine and getting a subscription. Unfortunately, Sing Out is no longer publishing. They still have a website at singout.org uh, where you can find some of the past uh, issues and such. Uh, but they're no longer publishing. And, of course, the politics that were being discussed there. This was the days before Donald Trump, 2012. Things were a lot different back then. The uh, communications was a lot different back then. And I think you heard some of that in the discussion. And you heard questions from a number of audience members. I I could detect uh, Mike Agronoff um, making a comment and Wanda Fisher and uh, Mary Cliff, who is the host of a radio show series in, in, in Washington, D.C. Um, Wanda Fisher, of course, is uh, the host of the Hudson Sampler in Albany, New York. Um, I'm not sh I can't remember where we were that year. Uh, I think that was in the Hudson Valley Resort in Kerhonkson, if I'm not mistaken. I would think so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but it was a lovely event. And it's such a, uh, it's so great to hear these individuals uh, talking about their careers. And, you know, aside from Bob, who's unfortunately passed on, Happy and Josh are, are still going strong and still making great music. Happy had a, a wonderful album this year. And Josh is continuing. He's always 
posting on my Facebook page, and uh, he's just a, a lovely individual. And of course, Roger Dietz, uh, he is uh, he's a New Jersey re resident, a good friend I've known for years, and uh, uh, just lovely to hear him. He does a great job of interviewing, as, as do you, Sonny. And again, our, our thanks to you for creating this series. Uh, it's, it's fun going back and hearing these uh, again, aren't isn't it? It most certainly is, and I'm so glad you've come on board to help me get this out there and making it sound professional. <laughs> oh, you sound professional. You didn't need me, but I'm glad to be a part of this and to carry on this tradition. Well, we're going to be back again next month, and what do we have planned? It's a new one that we're going to do next month, right? Yes, I believe so. We're going to concentrate on folk festivals, and we have three people Shall we tell them who? We'll sure, them go ahead. Yeah. Well, we're going to cover three very different festivals and quite a large geographic spread. Uh, we're going to have Ann Saunders from the Falcon Ridge Folk Festival, which used to be in New York and has now moved over to Connecticut. And then we have Dallas Allen from the Kerrville Festival down in Texas, Kerrville, Texas, and we're even going out of the country. We're going to Canada up in Ontario uh, to talk with Mike Hill, who was very involved with the Mariposa Festival. He ran it for a few years. He actually wrote a book about it, about the first 50 years of the festival. So I know it's going to be an interesting oh, session. Definitely. Three festivals that are so important to our folk community. I, I can't wait to do it. Well, Sonny, thanks so much. Have a, a, a wonderful couple of weeks. We'll, we'll join you again and uh, for the next Wisdom of the Elders. And again, my thanks to you for doing this. And my thanks to you for helping out so strongly. Thank you, Ron Alesco, creator of Folk Music Notebook. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. And uh, remember to tell your friends. We're available wherever you can find your fine podcast. And we'll see you next month for another edition of Wisdom of the Elders.